this podcast, you'll learn how to extend your mind using connected notes, the three simple principles for creating a knowledge garden, and how to boost your creativity and upgrade your thinking with connected note-taking. I want you to understand from this podcast that note-taking is not just for remembering stuff in the future. It's fundamentally for upgrading your thinking. And Jorge, more than almost anyone I know, has dove into how we can use our notes to upgrade our thinking and boost our creativity in unimaginable ways. Hello, PKMers. Welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfon, the podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. This week, we have Jorge Aranjo, an information architect, author, and educator. For the past 25 years, he's used architectural thinking to bring clarity and alignment to digital products and services. He's the author of Living in Information, Responsible Design for Digital Places, co-author of Information Architecture for the Web and Beyond, and host of the Informed Life podcast, which I'm an avid listener of. I love that podcast. (laughs) Besides consulting, writing, and podcasting, Jorge also teaches in the Graduate Interaction Design Program at the California College of Arts. Jorge, thank you so much for coming on. And I thought we'd start pretty broad at first. I know that you have a new book coming out in 2023, duly in 2024, duly noted. So could you tell us a bit more about what the book is about as a whole? Absolutely. My work is in information architecture, like you said, which entails organizing information to make it possible for people to find and understand stuff, right? So Mm. you can think of that as manifesting in things like structuring websites and apps, creating taxonomies. Like when you're shopping online for products, you might see a list of categories for the store, that kind of thing, right? Duly Noted takes a lot of the principles and practices that I have learned in my career as an information architect and applies it to organizing your own information. So not things designed for other people to find stuff, but for you to find stuff and to think more effectively, right? So it's you can think of it as information architecture for personal knowledge management. So mm. how, to, how to organize your own stuff so that it becomes a good place for you to think. I'm curious. There's a lot of content out there about personal knowledge management from people with a background in PKM. But as you said, you have a information architecture background. So how did that affect the ideas and the organization of the ideas in your book? That's an interesting question. Before I became an information architect, my background was in architecture. So uh-huh. I, I'm originally a designer of buildings. Yeah. And there are parallels between the sort of work that you do as a building architect and the sort of work that you do as an information architect. In Mm. both cases, you are trying to structure things. Let's call them things for now. You're trying to structure things to make it possible for people to do certain, carry out certain activities, right? So if you are an architect designing a performance venue or a hospital, 
or a hotel. Those are all buildings that enable different kinds of activities and they require that um, there be certain types of spaces, certain types of facilities, and those, those spaces need to come together in particular ways to enable those activities. Uh, moreover, uh, those buildings need to have certain um, structural components. They need to have things like an electrical system, a heating and air conditioning system. There's all this complexity that goes into making that place a location where people can do stuff, right? Mm. And uh, when you're doing the work of an inf of information architecture, um, there are there are uh, parallels to that, right? You have to understand what kind of activities people want to carry out in that space or need to carry out in that space, what they expect to see there, and um, and then you have to structure the the system so that it accommodates those kind of activities. So, for example, I'll give you an example: if yeah. you're designing a a bank, an online bank, right, like the the the, the website or or app for a bank. People expect that they will be able to log into that space, right? And in so doing, cross over from the public part of the bank to a more private part of the bank where they can see their accounts and uh, do things like pay their credit cards or transfer money or what have you. Those are all things that you intentionally structure. Mm -hmm. Now, when you are working on your own personal knowledge management system, you are not designing things from the top down like that because a lot of the stuff that you're going to be capturing is going to be emergent. You're not going to know the content up front, especially if you do it like I do for the purpose of learning and growing and thinking as an individual. You're going to be building a place that allows your mind to wander and to support your learning. And that precludes structuring things up front. Now, that does not mean that that place shouldn't have some structure, right? Like, as you know, you know these systems, current, modern, connected, note-taking systems allow you to use things like tags and links and folders and all of these things. And they're super powerful, but none of them come with an instruction manual of like, how should you use tags? <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, you can just tag things, right? Like, you can just add tags. And... Um, if you study what people have been doing in, in disciplines like information architecture, you'll see that tags are, they can be super open-ended, but you can also do it a bit more mindfully and therefore mm -hmm. create structures that encourage kind of more emergent, bottom-up structure to emerge that suits your own needs in, in thinking with the system. It sounds like your past in information architecture and architecture helped you see how to do top-down structure in a really good way, like when you're designing a bank and trying to have all the parts fit together. But as you said, in mo modern-day knowledge management apps, there's often a lot more bottom-up structure. Like a kid at a candy store, you can you can choose like, oh, I'm going to use this tag and then this tag, and it quickly can become overwhelming if you start taking like all the candy. But it, it, it slowly you can build a system over time. And this reminds me of a metaphor that you use in the book, which is seeing your knowledge management as a garden. 
So could you tell us more about what you mean by that and how that metaphor helps in your personal knowledge management? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that metaphor is central to the book. The architectural worldview is a very top-down worldview because if you're creating a building, if you're, if you're going to make a building, that, that requires a huge investment, right? And it's, and it's a very permanent intervention in the environment. So you kind of have to know what you're doing uh, before you actually start building the thing. So there's a lot of upfront planning. There's a lot of upfront structuring. It's, it's very top-down. For the most part, I mean, there are exceptions to that. In fact, I, I take some exception with Eno's characterization about architecture, but but like as a caricature, it works, right? It, it's a fairly top-down discipline. Gardening is a more emergent, bottom-up practice. It still entails design, right? And there's still some structure. Like a gardener, you know, gardening is not the same as foraging, um, mm-hmm. foraging in the wilderness. In gardening, you are structuring a place but you're doing it over a long span of time the place itself grows so it's not something that you are uh, building in the same way that you would a building instead you're setting it up to grow over time and uh, and it's importantly it's something that you as a gardener nurture right so there's this Mm. notion of stewardship that comes into the practice of gardening and to me it feels very appropriate when thinking about personal knowledge management. Contrary to what you might read in the marketing materials for, um, for apps and stuff like that, uh, no one app is going to be a magic bullet. You know, they're not going to solve no. this problem for you, right? <laughs> it's like you're not just going to start taking notes and the thing is going to think for you. Yeah. Uh, for this to work, you have to commit to working at it and, and using it as a th- place to think and uh, you know it's again it's not going to think for you it's a place that you build for yourself over a long stretch of time in my case it's a commitment that i have to lifelong learning so i consider my personal knowledge management system something that i will be stewarding and evolving over the course of my lifetime it's not a project Mm. it's an area of focus for me in my life it's a it's a place that i go to to think Mm. and in that it resembles more a garden than it does something like a product or an app or you know even a building it's a it's mm. a living place i think that's the crucial distinction there between uh, how like seeing your knowledge management like a garden and being the steward of it makes you care for it more cuz i remember i used to not use this analogy, this metaphor when thinking about knowledge management. And I kind of treated my knowledge management as like a garbage heap. Like <laughs> I would just collect stuff and just throw it onto the the little like garbage heap, never processing it or anything, never like washing it. But now after coming to this ga- garden analogy, it's like I'm treating it as if it was a little plant that I'm trying to grow over time. And like, I'll go inside of it and I'll try and connect notes together. And every week I'll save all of my data to a physical hard drive in the cloud because I, if it burns, I don't want it to be gone forever. You know, just like how if you're, you're, you're protecting your sapling as if you're rearing it in like real life. So I think that analogy is super helpful for, for changing the mindset that you come to, to gardening with. 
And yeah, and, and, a, and yeah. a garden is something that you work at, and if you do it. It yields fruit, right? And uh, yeah. So, 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 and and there's another there's another image like you mentioned garbage heap. The one that I had heard, uh, which has been around for a while, is junk drawer. And there's a category <laughs> there's a category of apps that used to be called junk drawer apps, right? Yeah. Uh, there's an app called Yojimbo, which has been around for a long time, and I remember hearing people refer to it as a junk drawer app for that very reason. It's like it's a sort of place mm-hmm. where you stash things. And the implication is you never circle back to them. You just like have the peace of mm-hmm. mind that they're safe somewhere, right? Yeah, another aspect that you mentioned about the connection between architecture and gardening is architecture tends to be more top down, whereas gardening is more bottom up. So I wanted to dive into that distinction more. What, h- how does bottom up note taking look like in a connected note-taking app like Obsidian? And and what does bottom-up note-taking afford us in extending our our mind? Well, I'll say this. I've, I've had a lot of people, when I when I told them that I was writing a book about taking better notes, I, I had, I've had two reactions. One reaction is <laughs> people would say, oh, I need that. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the other reaction is kind of puzzlement. It's like, what, notes? Like notes, like everyone yeah. knows how to take notes, right? Yeah, uh, and and, <laughs> and and I think that that's that's because um, I think that we think of notes as the 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 way that most of us think of notes is shaped by our encounters with notes as phys- physical things in the world, read sticky notes or uh, you know a, a paper notebook a piece of paper where you're like scribbling down the things that you hear in a call or whatever right and the in both of those cases well the first thing to acknowledge is that those are very different things a sticky note serves a different uh, purpose than a notebook and that serves a different purpose than a whiteboard when you're brainstorming it serves a different purpose than a mind map right like and these things we all we talk about them as notes but they're all slightly different But in all of those cases, the object of focus, the thing that you are working on is the sticky note or the piece of paper or the the field notes notebook in your your pocket, right? And whatever page you're on. So it's a very kind of granular understanding that you're making that one thing. And one of the things that's different about working with digital systems and uh, and I assume that uh, folks who listen to your podcast are familiar with tools like Obsidian and Rome Research and oh, yeah. Notion and all these hypertext note-taking systems. The thing that's one of the things that's interesting about these tools is that the object of focus is not so much the individual note; it's the knowledge graph, right? It's the collection mm. of notes and how they relate to each other somehow. That's what makes these tools different and special. From you know, different from something like uh, an old school note taking app of the sort that mimics a paper notebook, right? That has maybe sections or folders and then individual notes for for each thought. Like the thing that makes these tools special is that you can link notes, and there are many many flavors of links. Um, you can assign metadata to notes. In the case of Obsidian, you know there are properties and there are tags. And um, one way to compare and contrast bottom-up with top-down architecture in note-taking systems is when I was in school many, many decades ago, 
uh, I took notes using a Trapper Keeper binder, right? Like these big <laughs> plastic binders. And the way that I would save notes in that binder was I would uh, have these dividers, right? Like it was loose leaf, loose leaf notebook, and there were these dividers. And uh, the dividers would represent a different class, right? So I had one for science, one, one for math, one for history or whatever, right? And that was a fairly uh, rigid hierarchy, right? Like it, it was organized by, by class or by subject. And that was the, basically the only way for me to organize it. Maybe if I had been more disciplined, I would keep like one of these binders per school semester or whatever. And that would be like the top level of the hierarchy. So it would be something like semester, then um, then um, the, the, the course or the subject. And then inside of that, there would be notes that would be invariably arranged chronologically. So they would be, you know, taken uh, by date or by, by, by in the order of the week that they were captured. So that's a very kind of top-down structure with physical notebooks. You're kind of limited to one way of organizing things, right? Um, you couldn't really do things like tag loose leaves in a binder, right? Like that doesn't make much sense. But <laughs> but uh, but with something like Obsidian or Notion or 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 any of these tools, you can uh, when you're capturing the note, you don't have to decide where it goes right up front. Uh, moreover, um, you are not limited to things like folders that have this very strict parent-child relationship. You can use things like tags that can be applied to many notes, regardless of where they live in the system, right? Mm. And what that encourages with a little, a little bit of foresight is for you to liberate yourself from having to think about where things go and instead start thinking about describing things based on what they represent or what they are or what state they're in. And if you do that, First of all, you're going to be able to, your thinking is going to be able to flow more when you're working with these systems, right? That's my, and I have to say uh, right off the bat, my goal with writing this book is not to help you to take and organize your notes better. It's to help you think better. Notes mm. are a way to do it. And if you can build a note-taking system that helps you think more effortlessly, you're going to you're going to think better. That's that's what I'm betting on. I'm betting on it because I, it happens for me. Like I use these systems myself, and I uh, I consider them an extension of my mind. Uh, but anyway, I, I hope that answers your question. Think of the very rigid um, hierarchy that is imposed by physical notebooks versus the more fluid and uh, cross-referential structure type of structures that you can use in a system like obsidian or rome where you can tag things arbitrarily and then figure out where they fit in later or maybe not at all right hello pkmers i have some exciting news which is my new video course the art of linked reading is finally coming out this course helps people who struggle to understand, connect, remember, apply, and smartly share insights from nonfiction books learn to do so with linked note-taking apps like Obsidian, Tana, LogSeq, and more. I'm excited to share this course with you because linked reading has changed my life. I used to read tons as a kid until I got to school and lost my love for reading. 
But in junior year of high school, I started taking notes from books again. And once I found the PKM community and linked note-taking apps, I was able to take linked notes. I started cultivating my inner genius by coming up with novel insights. People noticed. They saw that I was more articulate, interesting. And I started understanding, remembering, and applying my book insights. So if you want to make the same transformation, check out the course in the description of this podcast below. Hope you have a phenomenal rest of the podcast. Yeah, it sounds like in your past, you used to organize stuff physically, which didn't let you link it together. But with these new like note-taking apps, one of the big emphases that you want to get across is that they help you think better, which I find so funny because it reminds me of what you said about the two reactions that you'd get when you tell people you're writing a book on note-taking. It's like, oh, I can use that. Or especially the second person, like, why? <laughs> it's like, I don't think they realize the potential that notes have for upgrading your thinking. And it reminds me when I was in high school, I used to do the same thing you did. I would take physical notes for every class, but every year at the end of the year, I would get together with my friends and we'd burn all of them. We're like, ah, year's over. We don't need the notes anymore because we literally never went back to them or connected them to new notes. And I feel like with these new note-taking systems like Obsidian Notion and also the metaphor of the knowledge garden, it's like you would never burn your sapling after it's grown to like a certain level. You just continue watering it to let it that, grow. That's right. And and, that, and I experienced the same thing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't burn them myself. I, I think I write about this in the book. I think that... that uh, that my mom must have uh, must have gotten rid of our old notes, right? Um, mm -hmm. But but it is certainly true that I never really thought much about them after the semester was over, mm. and uh, and and I think that that at least in my case, and it might be true for other people as well, but I'll speak in my case. That came from a confusion of what notes are for. I think that the popular conception of notes is that they are primarily an aid to memory. And if you look up uh, the definition of notes in the in the dictionary, at least my Max dictionary, it it defines them as something kind of like an aid to memory, right? Like that's mm. that's the popular conception of what notes are. Um, and for me, a big um, leap, a big kind of change, a big shift in my thinking uh, came through being exposed to this uh, thesis of the extended mind. Uh, there's a, a paper by uh, Andy Clark and uh, David Chalmers and, uh, and a book that, um, there's, a, there's a fairly recent book on this subject by Annie Murphy Paul called The Extended Mind, which um, explains uh, Clark and Chalmers' uh, ideas in, uh, in kind of lay terms that make them easy to relate to. And the, the basic notion there is that our cognitive apparatus is not limited to our wetware. You know, it's not limited to the, <laughs> the meat computer that we have. Wetware. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, uh, uh, I used to think that thinking happened in, in my brain 
And then what came out my pen, you know, what, what I wrote down on the paper was the result of the thinking that had already happened in my brain. Mm. And the, the shift in my thinking came in understanding that really the pen, paper, and brain are working together. It's a sort of system. And when you scribble lines in a piece of paper and you see those lines in the world, they are serving this, um, they are serving as a, an extension of your nervous system in some way that uh, allows you to think differently than if you, um, than if you had no, nothing to work with, right? Mm. Uh, I'm going to reference another uh, really useful book. There's a book called Figure It Out by Carl Fast and Steven Anderson that, that maps those ideas to design, to, to the design of you know, particularly software, but, all, but other types of things. And, uh, and in that book, uh, Carl and Steven, um, who I, I reference by first name because they're friends of mine, but they, they have this analogy or, or, the, or this illustration that I find really powerful. They say, imagine that you are shown a pile of coins of different denominations, mm. like it's just a big pile of coins, right? And then you're, added, you're asked to uh, name how much money there is in the pile. And if you try to do that exercise, you will find that it's much easier to do it if you can take your hand and move the coins so that you group them by denomination so mm. that you can see that there are five mm. quarters or you know three nickels or you know 15 dimes or whatever right it's much easier to do that to move them around and to group them and then figure it out than just try to look at the pile and and try to like compute it in your mind right mm. so that's an illustration of this idea that we think with things and the really powerful shift for me was understanding that notes are not for recording your thoughts. Notes are where the thinking is happening. Mm. And if you understand that, then you can start to approach note-taking more mindfully so that you can expand your cognitive abilities. That was such a powerful realization for me when I read The Extended Mind. I remember the analogy that helped me understand it similar to like your gold analogy which i love is thinking of ideas like lego bricks and the idea that you take a whole bunch of lego bricks that aren't connected and then create something out of them but you can create like a bajillion different things like a lego star wars ship or a big like the harry potter school <laughs> or, or whatever and Connected note-taking to me is the assembling of those Lego bricks into different combinations and like taking it off and then putting it back together and seeing what happens. And I'm, I'm curious for people that are in that second group that like don't see the value of note-taking, they're like, why? What would you tell them along this idea for why taking connected notes is so powerful? for upgrading your thinking. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you should ask that because I'm I'm actually more concerned with the people who say I need that book mm. than with the people who don't yeah. understand why they need it. Uh, yeah. and I say that because I think that for the people who say I need that book, they might think that the book is about better note taking of the sort that you do with a field notes pocket notebook, right? 
Because yeah. when they think of notes, that's what they, th- or maybe sticky notes, right? Uh, and and in that case, I think that they're going to get value from the book, but perhaps not as much value if they're thinking right off the bat that I'm going to be using a, a hypertext note-taking system like Obsidian. Mm, uh, yeah. but, but in the second case, what I would tell them is, I would use something like the story I just said about the coins, right? And I would say, look, realize that you're not thinking just with your brain. I think that that's, that's the that that's one of the gateways to this stuff is the realization that thinking isn't limited to the brain and the the thing that is so exciting to me about that that I mean it really gets my my juices going to think about this mm-hmm. is that if you realize that you think with things and that your your cognitive abilities are not limited to the to 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 what you were endowed with at birth, uh, all of a sudden it becomes possible for you to set things up so that you can be more successful. You have mm. agency, right? Like there's not there's not much that I can do about my uh, innate cognitive abilities. I have whatever grain matter I was born with. You know, I I mean I can become more educated. Um, but uh, but I, I there's not much that I can do barring some kind of sci-fi uh, <laughs> plug-in, you know, that, what's that neural yeah, Like the Matrix that, where you can yeah. just like download karate. <laughs> That's right. It's like I know Kung Fu, right? Uh, uh, b- barring some development like that, uh, you know, there, there's not much that we can do. I mean, some people might uh, might take, uh, I don't know, they, they might uh, they might take... Uh, uh, they might drink coffee or or they might take some kind of like mind expanding substance or what have you but uh but uh but you know what we have our our physical our body you know our our our, our brain our gray matter is what it is right and uh and uh and to me it's really exciting to think that there are things that I can do there are interventions I can make in my environment whether my physical environment or in this case, the software that I use that are going to somehow give me mental superpowers. That's hugely mm. exciting, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so, um, so that, that's one of the motivations for writing this book. And I just want to circle back to your Lego image because that's a really powerful image. Um, one of the neat things about Lego is that Lego... Like you said, it allows you to make a lot of different things, and it allows you to do so with a with a fairly limited set of rules, a fairly limited mm-hmm. set of pieces, right? So Lego works because it has a standard of a standard that consists of pieces with certain shapes, right? The shapes have to have very precise measurements. Like think of the little studs on the top of a Lego brick and the little holes underneath that the studs go into. Those have to have very precise measurements for the pieces to click into place, right? The pieces need to be of certain heights so that three of the flat ones equal one of the thick ones or what have you, right? Yeah. Uh, they also have to have very precise material composition. So the the ABS plastic that Lego bricks are made of, it has to have just the right amount of um, 
flexibility and rigidness so that the pieces stick together when you clip them, right? If they were very soft, they would not clip together. If they were very hard, they would break. Uh, so so, th so there's, a, there's a series of constraints that go into making Lego function as a system. And part of what I'm trying to do with this book is to say, look, when you start working with an app like Obsidian, you're going to have basically limitless capabilities. Like you can, you can use anything as a tag, right? Yeah. But if you set some constraints for yourself, you're going to have an easier time in creating these bottom-up structures that support your thinking in the long term. So that mm. five years down the line, you're not having to manage a taxonomy of 5,000 tags because oh, you're going to go crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so what are the rules? You have to impose your, some constraints on yourself. And what I'm trying to do with this book, this is like the opposite of one of these books that tells you this is the, this is the approach you should use. This is the one right way, all in uppercase, right? The one right way trademark uh, to manage your, your notes. No, what I'm trying to do is to say, look, if you apply some basic principles of uh, information management, some basic principles and practices, you're going to have a better go at it than if you approach this just kind of like without any structure. Really knowing. Yeah. 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 It's such a paradoxical thing about creativity is often constraints to some degree actually make you more creative. I remember one of the most valuable things from the book was the three principles of connected note-taking because I think so many people that go into these apps completely overcomplicate it to the point where they actually stop. So could you share those three principles? I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, that I think that that's at the core of the book. There are, I've tried to boil down the, the, the gist of it to these three principles that you're talking about. The first principle is that you should aim to take short notes. And, and all three of these principles, I, I must say this right off the bat, but the first one is a good one to illustrate this with. All three of these principles are there because in order for us to use, effectively use these systems, we have to let go of the mental models that we bring to note-taking from the past. Mm. So like we've been talking about physical note-taking on things like binders. There, I think that there are mental models. We have mental models for what notes are and how we take notes and how we keep notes. And for the most part, those mental models are based on hundreds of years that our species has in taking notes on paper, which, like we said, has a particular set of constraints. And digital does not have the same constraints. So we have to kind of rethink those mental models. And these principles are designed to... Uh, articulate what I think of as the, ens the essence of the mental model that is required. The first one is that you should aim to take short notes. And what I mean by that is this notion that I'm sure you've seen elsewhere that uh, each note should be primarily about one idea. Mm. And, um, and you and I have had a conversation about uh, th these index notes that are, that are richer than, than that. Right. Uh, uh, and, and that's an approach for sure. Uh, but, I, and I'll speak now to my own practice, 
in my own practice, a, a big breakthrough came in the understanding that I am I was no longer taking the sort of notes that I took in school where I was trying to capture everything that the teacher said, you know, and realizing that a lot of the things that the teacher was saying in this in this example were things that really should be separate notes and they were referring to different types of notes. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things that I do, I'll now speak in, in, in technical terms, in terms of Obsidian. Uh, Obsidian um, lets you create different repositories of notes, which are called vaults, right? So I have uh, a couple of vaults. I have one where I keep my highlights and notes and thinking about things I've learned in books and lectures and all that stuff. So it's like my thinking vault. And then I have another vault that is my project vault. And my project vault is where I keep things like meeting minutes, all right? And in, in that vault, I have notes for things I heard in meetings. I have notes for the people who were in those meetings, the people who I've met. I have notes for projects, right? I have notes for the organizations that the people work for and who are in some cases commissioning those projects, right? And all of those things are different types of notes. In the past, when I was working with paper, I would have had notes about the meeting, but I would not have had a separate note for each person in the meeting, mm. you see? And now, because I think of them atomically as you know, composed of these different short notes, I know that there is going to be a note for each meeting and that in each one of those meeting notes, I can point to individual notes for each one of the people in the meeting. Mm. And what that allows me to do is I can then go into that person's note and see all of the meetings I've been in with them, right? Yeah. Because there are backlinks. So this notion of thinking in terms of each note articulates one central idea or one central type of thing for that idea is that's the first the first principle right mm. the second principle is that you should link your notes right and i've already talked about the example of meeting minutes pointing to the people who were in the in the meeting right that's something that again it's possible to do with paper, I guess, but it's much harder, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can. I can imagine that I could have a, a a notebook for my meetings, and then I could write and I could say I met with Aiden, and then I could have a certain a separate notebook for people I've met, and I could have a page for Aiden. But uh, and I could go to that notebook and and like flip through the pages until I found the page oh. that had you know. But uh, but then I couldn't easily see from that notebook all the meetings I've been in with Aiden. Yeah. Right? So so it's not it's not inherent to paper to link things. It is inherent to digital, right? So yeah. So that's the second principle. It's like look to make short notes, but link them, right? And then the third principle is that you have to nurture your notes. Mm. And I think that the first two principles are perhaps easier to grok because I can give tangible examples. I can say, you have a meeting minute and you link to it to a person note and all that stuff. But nurturing is, is harder to illustrate because it's something that occurs over time. And the idea there, and that's perhaps less relevant to things like meeting minutes, but it's certainly relevant to people notes, is that 
I may have, in this example, I may have interactions with this person over time. I may have many interactions with this person over time. And I might learn new things about them, right? Mm. Uh, I, uh, I might learn that, uh, that a colleague's um, a colleague's birthday is on a certain date or whatever, right? Or I might learn that they uh, really enjoyed a particular book or, or that they like a particular kind of music or what have you. And, uh, and I could revisit their note and like write down about this. This is making me sound kind of creepy. <laughs> it's like you're keeping, <laughs> you're keeping tabs on people. I don't, I don't, I'm, I, I'm using this as a hypothetical. I don't actually do that for people, but I do do it for ideas, right? Um, I have ideas that, um, that I've been nurturing for a long time. And these are things that I've come across in books uh, or that I've heard about in a lecture or that someone in a conversation has brought up and said, like, for example, the idea of architecture versus gardening, right? Yeah. I have a note in my, in my slip box vault for architecture versus gardening. And that's an idea that um, has proven to manifest in many different guises for me over time. And every time that I come across a different take on it, I revisit that note and I expand on it. So even though the first principle is like keep them short, it's really about like making them about one thing because over time they will grow, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is where the gardening thing comes in uh, uh, as well, right? Because you are, you, are, um, you are revisiting these things over time. You are expanding them. You're not burning them at the end of the semester. You are uh, continually revisiting them. And that's a different way of working with notes that, again, I don't think is part of the mental model that we have from traditional paper-based note-taking. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like if I had known those three principles when I first started taking linked notes, it would have made my journey so much easier because I switched note-taking apps five times because I didn't know how to use them effectively, that I would basically get so annoyed with a note-taking system, I would just drop it and go to another one. And I feel like those three rules, especially that last one about nurturing, are so powerful. Because it goes back to that gardening analogy. You would never, uh, like, like you would never, with a plant that you're taking care of, try and water it with like a whole like three buckets of water to try and grow it like as rapidly as possible right you would come back to it water it every day a little bit over time and you wouldn't burn it <laughs> at the end of the year either i i just love that analogy so much well you know there's also yeah. i think that people also have unrealistic expectations about how these systems work and what they can do for them. And uh, there's been a, 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 um, a bunch of articles. That I've, I've seen fewer of them recently, but, uh, but in the last couple of years, I've seen a bunch of articles saying that, uh, you know, personal knowledge management is BS and that, uh, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors or a waste of time or what have you. And oftentimes when I read those, I get the impression that the author downloaded a tool, tried using it for a little while, realized that it was a lot of work, didn't get any 
results or I don't know what results they were expecting, but they didn't get any like fresh insights or whatever and immediately declared, uh, declared the whole project useless without understanding that these are not the sorts of things that you install and start deriving benefit from immediately. I mean, there mm-hmm. is some benefit because the, I find that the very act of sitting down and having to think about what you're thinking on the screen by typing it out, by actually trying to put it into words, changes how I think about it. So there's value to mm. me immediately in, in using the thing. But the, but the notion that you're going to be using this for, I don't know, a couple of months, and then suddenly having kind of like magical insights or that the, <laughs> I don't know, that AI is going to start making these uh, unexpected connections for you. I think it's unrealistic. And, um, and I... My uh, my framing of the knowledge garden is the same as my framing of a physical garden, which is this is the sort of project, I shouldn't even call it a project. It's not really a project. It's the sort of undertaking that you commit to for a lifetime. It's not, mm. it's not a thing that you sign up for to, to see if it, you know, if, see if you don't kick the tires on it, right? And frankly, it's not for everyone. Like I, it, 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 and, and this goes back to your question. It was like, how do you, how do you sell this idea to people who don't understand what, why they need it? Like maybe a lot of people don't need it, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that this is for everyone. Uh, but I think that if you are someone who is committed to a life of learning and a life of taking advantage of the fact that we live in the golden age for access to information in the history of humanity. There has never, ever, mm-hmm. ever been as much information as there is now. And that, that is both good and bad, right? Uh, it can be overwhelming. If you are someone who appreciates the, the, the opportunity that that incredible privilege grants us, then it behooves you to find ways of managing information better and thinking better. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then this kind of project might be for you, right? Hello, everyone. If you enjoyed the podcast, you should consider checking out my and fellow Obsidian creator John Maverick's flagship note-taking course, Obsidian University, your secret weapon in school. Obsidian University is a pre-made student vault filled with school templates, Obsidian plugins, and a tag-along course that explains how to use the various aspects of the vault as well as training you in understanding the core concepts of personal knowledge management. It's the vault we wish we had when making our Obsidian journey three years ago. In it, you will learn to get good grades in less time so you can focus on actually enjoying college life and making memories. You'll learn the best mindsets, methods, and tools for leveling up your note-taking and studying. You'll learn to navigate the overwhelming amount of information in the digital age, You'll build a note-taking system that compounds your knowledge across semesters. You'll learn better, remember more, and become more creative. You'll fall back in love with student learning. And you'll get to do so while joining fellow passionate learners in our exclusive Obsidian University Discord. And with access to John and I for being in the Discord as well. You can join the new student era today by checking out Obsidian University in the podcast description below. Sometimes that surprises me so much when I'm like walking around listening to an audible book and I'll reflect like, 
oh my god i'm listening to someone that like read over someone else's writing from probably halfway across the world while i'm walking around the block and then i think like back to seneca and and marcus aurelia and how they probably would have had to like walk to a physical library get out a few books couldn't even get out that many books because they would probably have to bring it back to the library unless they bought them and you know they didn't have like a way to audibly hear stuff as they were walking around so as you said it's like specifically for those people that appreciate the incredible amount of information that you have access to and want to figure out how to nurture their thoughts, this type of connected note-taking is right up their alley. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to, I'm curious for, in your experience, what made you realize you were the type of person that was into this type of thinking? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I've always been kind of nerdy and, yeah. uh, and, and into books and learning. And, uh, and, uh, and I, perhaps the, the, the moment where it became really obvious to me that I needed to do something here was when I started working on books. I've had a blog for a long time. I think I started blogging like in 1999. Or 1998. Wow. <laughs> uh, all of my blogs from back then are not online, but I have blogs online from like 2003. So it's so it's been a while. But um, but it was really when I started working on books. the The fourth edition of the Information Architecture book came out in 2015, and um, and managing my, that project, managing. The, the, the information that went into that project really kind of drove home to me the fact that I needed better systems. Mm. And, um, and again, I, I had been practicing information architecture for a long time at that point, so I approached it as an information architecture challenge. But, uh, but that was when I really felt the necessity in, in myself. And when I started getting really disciplined about it, I, had, I, I have been taking notes... Um, for books. Well, this is the other thing that you should know. I have really bad memory. Mm. And uh, and being someone who loves books and has bad memory is a kind of bad combination mm. because I often find myself going, oh, yeah, I remember reading about that. Where did I read about it? There's a similar idea to that, but I forgot. Yeah, what was that book that... Uh, Man, I you know, and th and that was a very frustrating experience for me, right? Mm, mm. So starting about uh, I think about ten or twelve years ago, I started uh, making short notes about every book that I read, and just keeping you know keeping a kind of reading journal. And my notes on books have become more and more elaborate over time. Um, I feel like I've become a more relaxed reader. I, I was kind of almost in a competition with myself. It's like, how many books can I get through this year? And I was like, I got through this one, check. I got through this one, check, right? <laughs> and now it's become more of like, okay, I, I've read this book and, I, and if I finished it, it's because I got value out of it. I'm, I'm leaving a lot. 
I'm leaving a lot of books unfinished, but uh, but if I got to the end, it's because I got value from it. And if I got value from it, I I, I should really try to capture what my thinking was, that uh, that where where that book kind of uh, informed me, right? Like where where I grew as a result of reading that. So I, you know, I I make the time to sit down and take notes, and I use Readwise to sync my Kindle highlights with Obsidian, and then I revisit my highlights, and I you know, and I spend. Uh, you know, I spent a couple of hours after finishing the book just reflecting on it, and uh, it means I'm reading less, but I'm also reading more deeply, right? Mm. And uh, and that combination of like wanting to retain more of what I learned from books, and then writing books myself, I, I would say, is what really prompted me to get serious about this stuff. Yeah, that's so so funny and and interesting because I had a very similar experience. Like I remember there was one day where I was sitting reading Make It Stick and my mom walked into the room. She was like, what book are you reading? I was like, it's Make It Stick. It's a whole book about how to improve your memory. And she looks at me with this really confused expression. I'm like, why are you looking at me like that? She's like, I'm trying to remember if I read that book or not. And I thought that was so funny because it's literally a book about improving your memory and to try and remember if she read the book or not. But that wasn't just a problem she was experiencing. It was a problem I was experiencing as well. So I started doing what you were describing with like link note taking after reading a book and completely changed the way that started to interact with books. Not only when you're reading, because you know that you're going to be looking at it deeper afterward, but also it forces you to think about how the books you're reading now connect to the things that you've read in the past. And that actually makes you remember the past stuff even better. Like if we go back to the Lego analogy, it's like like adding new Lego bricks to your old construction and, and also like moving them around after reading a new book, like building on it over time. Yeah, yeah, I think you're going to find this funny, uh, and I don't know if you're going to be able to read this, and people listening to the podcast are certainly not going to be able to read it, but I'm I'm just pulling a sticky note off the wall here, and I want to show it to you. It says, a simple, unexpected, uh, concrete, concrete, credential, credential emotional story, story. right? <laughs> uh, and this is my note to self about made to stick, right? It's uh, It's the way that I that I retain what I read, what I learned from that book so that it informs my day-to-day life because I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I, I write and I found that idea powerful. But if I don't write it down, if I don't create this augmentation of my environment, I am no, I'm not going to remember, right? So I literally, mm-hmm. like it's, it's almost like I prompted you. I literally have a sticky note for those ideas on my wall right next to my, right <laughs> next to my computer, there, right? Um, yeah. Because it is a powerful idea, but I won't remember it if I don't do something about it, right? Yeah, that, I, I love that so much. And what's so cool about that is if you apply the idea, then over time, you'll ingrain it and you might not even need the sticky note anymore because it'll just become a part of your being. So oh, I, love, I love how that goes back to like the extended mind theory that we were talking about earlier. And I wanted to ask you more about your book writing process itself, because I would love to write a book someday as well. And I was curious, what was 
the most surprising part of the book writing process for you? You know, the, the, the most, I think that the most surprising thing about writing for me has been how different it is from how people said it would be. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people, you, this is a, it's almost a cliche. You hear people say that writing a book is really painful, <laughs> that it's, uh, you know, that, that it's a lot of hard work and, and really painful. And um, they, they're like this, this image of the tortured author with a deadline <clears throat> looming. And uh, you know the, the the editor kind of emailing them saying where's the where's the deadline and all that stuff. Pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, I don't know. Have you heard the the Douglas Adams quote? Uh, um, I, I love deadlines. I love the swooshing sound they make when they pass me by or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. paraphrasing there, right? But uh, but Douglas Adams, I, I bring him up because he uh, there's a story that. Uh, his publisher basically kidnapped him. He, he got him into this hotel suite and locked him in there until he finished the draft of the book he had, oh my God. He had committed to doing. I mean, it's a, it's a little exaggerated. I mean, he was, you know, he, he agreed to be there, but uh, but he wouldn't let him out. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, think that that's the, I think that that's a mental image that a lot of people have about writing. And for me, the writing process has been the complete opposite. For me, it's been really enjoyable and it's uh, it's 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 something that I actually look forward to every day is, is doing a bit of writing, and and part of that part of the reason for that is that for me writing is thinking, and it's a it's a means of clarifying my my you know my thoughts about stuff, and it's a way of learning. It's kind of like a forcing mechanism. And I told you I'm something of a of a nerd, and I and I like learning. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of an excuse. It's a professional excuse for me to keep studying and to keep, uh, to keep learning and then, and then sharing that, right. Sharing that with, with other people. And, um, and I think, and this is something that hopefully might be a tip, particularly if you're, if you're wanting to write a book yourself, I think that part of the reason why for me, it, it has been a, a joyful experience so far is that. I think that what a lot of people struggle with with writing is not knowing where to start mm. and um and struggling to struggling to articulate the 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 gist of the idea in such a way that they can actually start writing about it you know it's a, the the blank page syndrome and and uh and and I don't really suffer from that and one of the reasons I don't suffer from it is that usually well, I'm talking usually as though it was a common occurrence. I've only worked on three book projects. I've contributed chapters to other books and done things like academic papers, but but like big book projects. I've never started with a completely blank canvas. Um, you know, the Information Architecture book was a fourth edition, so that literally had a, we started with a text. Uh, but the other two, I started with a bunch of ideas that I had been kicking around for a long time. In the case of living in information, there's a lot in there that came from my blog. And uh, and there were ideas that even though I hadn't yet written about, I kind of knew what I wanted to talk about. Mm. And then in Duly Noted, a lot of it came from my podcast, which I actually started in part because I wanted to write about that subject. And uh, And when I first start any of those projects, my first step is to dump all of these ideas into a virtual whiteboard 
as like virtual sticky notes without any order. I'm just like trying to get it all out of my mind. You know, the David Allen stuff, like just like do this brain dump, get it out there and don't worry about how things come together, but trust that you're doing it in a place that you can come back to and start making sense of it and moving things around. And before I start writing, you know, I think a lot of people think of the writing process as like, I'm going to sit in front of the word processor and start like putting one word after the other. It's like, well, think about before doing that, just like thinking a little bit about the structure, right? Um, and, uh, and the thinking about the structure starts with just doing this brain dump. And then uh, after you feel like you have gotten it all out and onto the whiteboard, you can start moving the, the sticky notes around and seeing what clusters emerge. And maybe you start experimenting with different configurations. Like what are different mm-hmm. ways of telling this story, of, of bringing folks along so that it makes sense to them, right? Mm. And uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing I would say is assume that you're going to write the book twice. So mm. <laughs> the, the first time you write it, you're going to get it out there. And it is most definitely going to be wrong. And then you're going to have the advantage of starting the book, starting the real book, with a draft, with a with a wrong version of the book. But at least you know how it's not supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like I said, the, the first book that I worked on, I had the advantage of starting already with an existing edition. But the other two, I basically wrote twice. And the the second draft is, you know, the actual book. I, I wrote the first draft knowing that it was going to be wrong. Yeah. I'm still here. Don't worry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So it sounds like one of the things that helped you so much with the writing process was you had this foundation of notes that you could use to write the book. Whereas a lot of people... I myself, when I was writing essays in high school, oh my God, I remember like sitting down last day before an essay was due on like how Holden Caulfield in The Catcher in the Rye represents this theme of the book. And then I'd be like, oh God, and I had like zero notes, entire blank page. Where do I go from here? But because you were taking a lot of notes about this idea, you had a podcast that you were talking about these ideas for when you sat down to write the book, you had this foundation of notes that you could use to actually go about the writing. So that's one surprising thing that you found about the process. I'm also curious, was there, what was the thinking behind how you wanted to tell the story about connected note-taking? Uh you know, it's it's one of those things that was very emergent. I, I had a first, mm. like I said, I had a first draft. Um, I had a, a first stab at the structure and that was not the structure that you see now in the book. I mean, the, mm. the, structure, that, the structure that you see in the finished book only really emerged in the second draft. Um, I did know certain things about it. I knew that I wanted... Hmm, let me, let me take a step back. I'm a firm believer in the power of constraints. Mm. I think that 
there is a common misunderstanding, and it, this is something that I learned in architecture school, and it was a huge revelation to me. I had come into architecture school with what I think is the common understanding of folks that creativity means that you can do anything, and that uh, you know the more freedom you have, the more creative you'll be, and uh, and it's actually the opposite in some ways. The more freedom you have, the harder it can be to get started, right? So, mm. so for me, it's very useful to set myself constraints, even if the constraints don't come from anywhere else, right? Like they don't necessarily come from my publisher. They don't come from the market. They don't, they, they come from me, right? And, and I'll give you an example of a constraint. I, when I, when I wrote Living in Information, my, my previous book, I was working in downtown Oakland, and that was uh, a little bit of a commute from where I live. Um, and I would commute using BART, which is our, our public transport system here. And I had figured out what I like reading, like I said, and I had figured out which chapters of books were chapters, which chapter length in books were chapters that I could get through in a single BART ride. <laughs> and it was like five stops. I had like five or four or five stops. And, um, and I had found that chapter length to be very comfortable. Like I, you know, I read books that have longer chapters and I read books that have shorter chapters. But I had found that the, the books that had chapters that I could start when I boarded BART and I could finish by the time I got off in my next station <laughs> was a good chapter length to convey a set of ideas and to uh, keep me engaged in the book. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to have the chapters in Living in Information be around that length. And I forget right now what it is, right? But, but I had a word count target. And then the other thing is there are some books that have chapters that all have more or less the same length. And then there are some books where the chapters are all over the place, where like one chapter is 15 pages long and the next chapter is 40 pages long and then the next chapter is five pages long or whatever, right? Yeah. And I, and, and I find books that do that much harder to get into because I can't, mm. I, I can't establish a reading cadence, right? Yes. Yeah. So I knew going into it that I wanted my chapters to be a certain length and I wanted them all to have more or less the same length, right? That was a constraint that I placed on myself. I didn't, it did not come from my editor. It did not come from my publisher. Uh, it was a self-imposed constraint. And, uh, and I worked from there, right? Like I, I could say, well, if I know that, if I know that it's this amount of words per chapter, that's only going to allow me to to tell about a certain number of ideas without confusing the reader. And I think I settled on something like three main ideas per chapter, right? If I wanted to include examples and I wanted to include uh, 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 stories and other things, right? So that immediately starts dictating a, a structure. And this is the thing. If you have a structure, you're no longer facing a blank page. Because mm. it, and, and I'll give you an image, like a mental image. When I started work in living in information, by the time I sat down to actually write words into a, into a word processor, I had a two-by-two two matrix, uh, not two-by-two, two, but a, but a two-dimensional matrix where 
like imagine a sticky board, uh, a, a, a whiteboard with, uh, with sticky notes, where in the x-axis, you have columns, one column for each chapter. And in the y-axis, you have the different beats you want each chapter to hit. So there's an opening story. There's the first point and then an example for the first point, a second point and an example for the second point, a third point and an example for the third point, and maybe like a closing story, right? Like that could be a kind of y-axis structure. Like you can imagine mapping that to a two-dimensional matrix. All of a sudden, your job as a writer becomes to fill in the fill in the cells that come up in that you know the intersections, right? Yeah, and so it's almost like you can have a visual punch list of like you know I, I'm missing the opening story for chapter three, so today I'm going to sit down and write that. Yeah. It also primes you to be on the lookout for those things, right? So like if you know that you have, uh, you know, I have a chapter in Duly Noted that is about, let's say, linking. Well, now I'm in the lookout for an opening story about linking, right? It's like I've primed myself to be, uh, to be prepared to, when I'm going about my daily life, you know, whether in my interactions with other people or in the things that I read, I'm primed to be looking for things that I can pull into the book, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, in many ways, I think what you're getting on is also why it's so powerful to create these big notes with like your thinking on a subject as well, like what a lot of people call maps of content, because just the act of taking notes and then putting in some initial thoughts and coming back to them, it also primes your brain to think about them in daily life. Like I'm sure you've experienced uh, as I have, I remember there was there, there have been many conversations that I've had with fellow students at Cornell where they'll say something and I'll be like, oh my God, that is going in like this thing that I've been thinking about for like six months and I just got an insight for it. And it just, the only reason that's possible is because you primed yourself to have that in the first place by creating that note um, and doing the same thing with your book writing. Yeah, there, there's a there's a name for uh, there's a cognitive uh, I don't know if it's a cognitive bias, but it's a, but it's a, it's actually a thing, right? That uh, I think it's called the batter mainhoff phenomenon. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but uh, but this is something that I think everyone's experienced. This is the idea that uh, that if you're thinking about buying a new huh. car, you know, of a particular yeah. make or whatever, then all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, it's this notion that you've primed yourself to be on the lookout for that. And before it was just like, you were just not paying attention to it. But all of a sudden, if you are thinking about it, then you start seeing where it might fit in. Our our nervous systems are are um, are really good at pattern matching, right? So uh, sometimes to our detriments, we start seeing patterns where there might not be any, you know, we might start seeing a correlation where it, where it doesn't really uh, belong. But, uh, but, uh, but we can use that to our advantage. If you're thinking about things, um, even if subconsciously, even, even if you're not like sitting down explicitly to think about it, but if it's kind of in the back of your mind mm -hmm. and you're prepared to do something about it, you know, capture it, yeah, then... You start, uh, uh, you know, you you start having these serendipitous uh, experiences, right? And it's mm. not anything mystical happening. It's it's just that you're primed to be 
looking for things that fit into the puzzle that you're trying to assemble. Yeah, I, this reminds me of this this one study where they took two different groups of students, brought them into a lecture hall, and the one group they said, "We're going to show you this TED Talk. Just watch it. That's it." And the other group they said, "We're going to show you this TED Talk, but after the TED Talk, you have to explain the main things that resonated with you to a fellow student." And the second group, not only did they remember significantly more about the TED Talk, but they also were able to articulate it to the other students. And it's so fascinating to me because they're doing the exact same thing. They're consuming the exact same information. But just the fact that they've been primed to like be looking for stuff changes how the information, how they remember it afterward and explain it to other people. Kind of like that, what you're describing with like priming that, yourself to look for these book ideas. That, that's a huge uh, argument in favor of learning in public and sharing what you learn, right? Because uh, yeah, and that reminds me of this this idea that uh, that one of the best ways to learn something is to try to teach it, and um, and uh, sometimes what we're doing, especially if you're mindful about it. What you're doing if you're posting on LinkedIn or if you have a Substack or something like that is you're you're teaching about what you know, right? And the the act of having to sit down and try to explain it to someone else forces you to really think about what you're saying. And if you're so, and if you're someone what you know, if you, if you're someone who is mindful and is not trying to uh, just you know uh, stir a hornet's nest or what have you, you you want to be. You know, you, you want to be thoughtful about what you write down. Uh, you know, you you want you want to be truthful and you want to uh, not misrepresent ideas and that kind of thing. So, um, so the the act of of writing, especially if you're going to be writing in public, is definitely a, a way of uh, of making be- be- better use of information. Uh, and I would like to think that. Even if you're not sharing it publicly, the act of writing it down for yourself also does that a little bit, right? Like you're mm. you're you're forcing yourself to really put this idea into words. I mean, this this notion we talked about earlier about architecture versus gardening that has many many dimensions. And I'm like I'm thinking about it right now. It's like I could like write a whole essay on that. Uh-huh. And and you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to really try to get my thinking straight about what this is about like i it's not enough for me to just like sit here and meditate on it or contemplate on it like i really actually have to start putting words on the screen and that's how i think and i think a lot of people think like that so it behooves you to you know if if you are one of these people it behooves you to give it a shot yeah i remember you mentioned in the book that digital gardening the public version of knowledge gardening is becoming much more popular as a means of public learning with your notes. And I think digital gardening isn't the only way, like you mentioned, also posting on LinkedIn, posting on Twitter, posting on YouTube, a podcast like this. It's a, I mean, as you said, you literally started the Informed Life podcast to learn more about what you would one day put in Duly Noted. And I'm curious, now that you're done with Duly Noted, do you have any idea if 
you want to write a fourth book? And if so, what that might be on? <laughs> well, it's, it's the first thing I'll say is I think I would love to write a new book. Like I said, I, I like writing. So for me, it's, yeah. uh, it's something that I actually enjoy. Uh, now, what would it be about? I don't know. It's, it's still too soon after Billy noted. I mean, most yeah. of my time over the next uh, few months, well, first of all, I teach in the spring, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be teaching and that takes up a lot of my time. And then a lot of my time is also going to be spent doing what we're doing now, talking about the ideas and duly noted. So I'm, I'm not thinking right now about the next book. That said, I have several ideas that I would like to learn about more deeply, right? Uh, yeah. I, I have like hunches about what that might be. And duly noted started as a hunch. Uh, living in information started as a hunch. And I have a bunch of hunches. And the question is, like, do any of these merit deeper exploration? And, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm not going to hurry that process. Yeah. Uh, it will happen eventually, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Now we're going to get into questions that I love asking every single one of my guests. And the first one is, what are three books that have resonated with you most? Wow, there's a lot of books that have resonated with me. Um, let me see if I can narrow it down. The first one that comes to mind is a book that that I'm sure folks, it might have come up previously in your podcast. It's called Finite and Infinite Games mm. by James P. Cars. Uh, that book was really important for me in my life. It's... Uh, it's a book about philosophy, but it's the best kind of philosophy. It's a, it's a kind of philosophy that is not uh, overly intellectualized and chattery. It's kind of practical, and it's a, it's a, it shows you how to look at the world in a different way. And it's, like I said, it's, it's been very influential in my life. Um, let me see. Another book that has been important to me is um you, you actually mentioned earlier is uh marcos aurelius's meditations mm. um th that book i've reread a couple of times and it's one of those that i know that i will continue revisiting throughout my life um i find it important to be engaged with works that have stood the test of time. There is a there are reasons why, after all this time, people still return to texts like Meditations. And uh, when you read it, you realize why that is, right? Like this, yeah. this person. And, and interestingly, I think that Marcus Aurelius was doing kind of what we're talking about here. He was thinking through his writing in that. Um, that book, as I understand it, was not meant for publication. It was his private notebook uh, or private journal, right? Um, let me see. Another book that uh, that was important to me in my life, and I think that this one is probably going to be less, uh, less applicable to people outside of... Um, outside of the, the, my professional work, information architecture and that kind of thing, is a, a book by 
the architect Christopher Alexander called a pattern language. And uh, Christopher Alexander had some co-authors, and I, I forget their names right now, but, uh, but uh, he wrote it with his collaborators. And uh, a pattern language is a really bold um, attempt at creating a type of architecture that is emergent, that is bottom-up. So I, I think that Alexander was trying to establish this balance between bottom-up and top-down thinking that, we're, that we've been discussing here. And many of the... Many of the, the design patterns, if folks in your audience are familiar with that phrase, many of the design patterns, the, the idea of design patterns that people talk about today in the, in the context of software development or design systems in user experience design can trace their roots to this book by Christopher Alexander. And to give you, I don't know if, if you've ever seen it, but uh, to, to, to give you a sense of the flavor of the thing, he's trying to give principles for designing things that range from doorknobs all the way out to the layout of towns mm. and everything in between. And each chapter is a pattern for how to design those things. So like, how do you create a cozy nook in a house, right? There are certain things that you should and shouldn't do in order to do that. And the interesting thing about this book is that... Um, it is very much a book. It's a physical thing. Uh, I think it's from the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a, but it's also a hypertext in that when you read a chapter, it'll say things like, you know, um, if you want to do this thing, then you should look at this other thing which is related to it, and it points you to that other chapter. So you could almost imagine this thing being built as a hypertext. Mm. So, so that, that, and that's, this is not the type of book that you read cover to cover, but just the knowing that this thing exists, uh, this kind of hypertext design book is truly inspiring and, um, and worth checking out. Alexander's work in general is worth checking out. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. It, it reminds me of like the process of going onto someone else's digital garden and just diving through it. It's like, you're never going to read every single thing, but you kind of pick out certain nooks and crannies. Like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I'm sure for you, you've probably used this in your information architecture to be like, you know, I'm interested in this thing. So I'll go there. And then you'll hear some references to other stuff. And you're like, oh, maybe I kind of want to check that out now. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. No, and look, look for opportunities to to cross uh, the boundaries of your discipline, right? Like, like I was saying, like I was inspired by Brian Eno, who is a musician, right? And, uh, yeah. and uh, you, can, you can find inspiration everywhere if you're looking for <clears throat> the underlying motives, the underlying concepts, as opposed to the kind of superficial manifestations of those things, right? If, yeah. if, you, if, if you're really kind of like grokking what's going on beneath the surface, you can be on the lookout for it. And yeah. uh, connect the dots. Yeah. If you eat it, what is your favorite brand and consistency of peanut butter? Oh my gosh, I I love <laughs> peanut butter. Um, I think that the one that we get at home is from Costco. They have a pretty good organic peanut butter. 
Uh, I get the sense that it, but but that that lets you know that I, I perhaps like someone who is like a connoisseur might be horrified of me saying that. But I I kind of like the Costco organic peanut butter. I think it's sold under their Kirkland brand, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love Teddy peanut butter myself. So anytime I go to Price Chopper, that's the it's a little like bear that's dancing on the front of the the can. I just love it so much. <laughs> you know, one thing that I like about the, the, it's funny, one of the things that I like about the Costco peanut butter is also one of the things I dislike about it. It, um, what I like about it is that this is a signal to me that it is kind of fresh and it's that, um, and, and one of the things that I dislike about it is what it does to the peanut butter. And, and it, what it is, is when you first open one of the jars, it's kind of separated so that it's much denser yep. at the bottom than it is at the top, right? Yeah. So you have to kind of stir it. And yeah. uh, and that makes for the experience of eating the first half of the jar much different than eating the second half of the jar. <laughs> it's, it's so true. This, the, the bottom half is like much, much more dense and the top half yeah. is like almost like liquid. Yeah. That's right. It does. Yeah. It definitely makes definitely makes it different, as you said. Uh, is there any questions I have not asked you that you wish I'd asked? You know, it's interesting. We did not talk a lot about um, artificial intelligence, which is a very hot topic in this in this field of personal, well, anything related to information, right? But uh, but I think that it stands to really transform how we use these these knowledge gardens that we're working on. And uh, we might leave that for another time, but just to say it is such an interesting thing that is happening with uh, yeah. artificial intelligence. And I'm very keenly experimenting with this stuff because as much as I said that um, you can't expect magical results by just pouring your thinking into the system, I think if there's anything that is going to allow something approximating magical results to emerge is when we start combining our digital notes with these incredibly powerful pattern matching generative <laughs> algorithms, right? So I'm very excited about that stuff and um, and thinking about what might be next in that direction. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's a great, great avenue to go down. It's like a cliffhanger, possibly for like a longer extended conversation on that. Because there's so much interesting stuff uh inside of that realm i'm yeah. outside of the podcast where is the best place for people to reach you the best place for folks who find me is on my website which is my first initial last name.com so j a r a n g o.com and uh, you'll find links to everything there but if you want to jump directly to the book that you will find at dulynoted.fyi Mm -hmm. And I will say that if you buy the book through my publisher, Rosenfeld Media, you can use the discount code AIDENPKG. <laughs> so your, your first name, PKG, uh, yeah. for a 20% discount. And that's going to be good for a month after this podcast comes out. Wow. Yeah, I, I hope my listeners in droves will, will get the book because I, I read the whole thing. I loved it. 
uh, and they can use my name <laughs> as a discount. That's so funny. I love that. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This was phenomenal.